0: morning guys, res kids, you were all dismissed to go to class to learn more about a big God who loves you very much. Everyone else, you're free to hear God's word together. I appreciate Bethany reading Exodus uh, chapter 7 verses 1 through 13. If you haven't already turned there, please do. Uh, I've preached a couple of pretty um, big chunks of scripture these last couple of weeks, and uh, I had originally planned to do that again. This m- Oh, ushers. Yeah, come forward for the morning offering. Sorry. Uh, I had originally planned to do that this morning to, to sort of give an overview of the ten uh, plagues and uh, what is going on there. But I, you know, I think there are some complex theological issues in play that we need to think about pastorally for a little bit before we jump right into those plagues. So I'm just going to preach this morning, verses 1 through 13 of Exodus chapter 7. The living God is moving. Moses has been chosen as a mediator, one who will act on behalf of God's people to bring deliverance from bondage for the Israelites. Moses initially resisted this call. He's gone back and forth with the Almighty, as we've seen in our texts together. Moses, as we saw last week, has already faced disappointment and discouragement. But these things, this disappointment, this discouragement, these things are finally dissipating, and God is moving. God will demonstrate in our text this morning that He is the God of Israel and everyone else. Yes, he's the God of Abraham, but the God of Abraham is the one true God to whom the nations will bow. He is the one who created all things. He is the one by his might who sustains all things. He is the one who will judge the world. He is the one who will right all wrongs. And he is the one who will reign forevermore. Amen? Say amen back. We've gotten really quiet as a church in the theater, and that's okay, I'm a quiet guy too, but I just wanted to make sure you were awake. We're gonna tackle some difficult theological questions this morning, and I pray that leads us not to necessarily more knowledge that pops up, but, but leads us to a knowledge that leads us to worship. This morning, we'll be reminded that God is a righteous judge who delivers his people from their enemies for the glory of his name. God is a righteous judge. He delivers his people from their enemies for the glory of his name, and he will receive all honor and glory due him. Let's look in verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, we see sort of this God-ordained interplay between Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh, right? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I commanded you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Moses will carry the word of God. He will appear before Pharaoh, the text says, as God. right? He will have all the authority of the Almighty. He will have all the requisite strength that will be needed to carry out the, the mission that God has set him on. Moses is like God. Aaron is his prophet. So Aaron is his mouthpiece. Aaron is the one who will relay this information to God. And Pharaoh is the recipient of God's message. Together, Moses, like God, and Aaron as his mouthpiece, approach Pharaoh with a simple command. Now, I remind you of what we've seen in previous weeks. If you would, just look back with me for just a moment in chapter 6 in your Bibles. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. The Lord is reassuring Moses that this is going to happen, because back in chapter 5, if you'd look with me, Pharaoh has said, absolutely not. Verse 1 of chapter 5, afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, The God of Israel let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I did not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. I remind us of that this morning because it's important to remember that Pharaoh has already responded to this command and his answer is simple. Who is the Lord? Never heard of him. I'm not interested in doing what you tell me he wants me to do. Pharaoh's heart is set against the God of Israel. He is a pagan king with, in his own mind, his own sort of deity. What does Pharaoh want? He wants power. He wants authority. He wants dominion. He wants his say to go. He wants his workforce. He wants his workforce to build him a great city. He wants his power to go to the nations. He wants his glory to be made known, to be manifest. He wants vindication in this clash of the gods. He hears that there's another god. Imagine being Pharaoh. I mean, you've built this whole empire basically all on your own, in your own mind. And this other person comes and tells you that there's a, a god who requires you to do something. I don't think so. Pharaoh says, I'm going to show him how powerful I am. I'm going to flex my muscles as the king of the world's strongest empire. He wants vindication in this clash of the gods. He wants this clash to happen. And what does Pharaoh not want? He doesn't want to submit to Moses. He doesn't want to submit to the God of Moses and let his people go. That's going to be important context as we look at verses 3 through 7. We could call verses 3 through 7 that we'll look at now, Pharaoh's hardened hearts. Pharaoh's hardened hearts. Verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now, God is going to multiply signs and wonders through the land of Egypt. He will bring his people, the children of Israel, out of this land by acts of great judgment so that the Egyptians will know that he is the Lord when he stretches out his hand against them. We have some summative material here. We're reminded of God's plan that's been set forth. in the chapters previously We're reminded that Moses is 80 years old, that Aaron was 83 years old. And it's a side point, but I'll remind you, if they can begin such journeys at such ages, God's not quite finished with you or me either. And then we encounter a somewhat complex theological issue over which Christians have disagreed and over which Jews had disagreed even before us. God says he will harden Pharaoh's heart. What does that mean, that God will harden Pharaoh's heart? Is God manipulating this situation? Does Pharaoh have any real will or any real volition, or is he simply a robot, right? Is his humanity somehow mechanical by which a divine being is just bringing about his desired ends through him with no real interplay between the two? Is Pharaoh morally culpable if the condition of his heart is not his fault? Perhaps you have these questions, perhaps you have others, and I'm not going to answer every question that you have, but I want to spend some time here because the relationship between Pharaoh's will and God's will is sort of representative and it's somewhat archetypal of the relationship between the divine will and the human will throughout the scriptures. We'll see complex issues like this later in Exodus, in Exodus 33, and I want to be able to say we already covered that when we get there. Exodus 33 says, The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you've spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. We see the initiative of the divine will there. In Romans chapter 9, 17 through 18, Paul is referencing this text with Pharaoh. He says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh in verse 17, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. As we consider the interplay between the human and the divine, I want you to remember four small notes that are really important, not only this morning, but when encountering difficult theological issues in your own Bible reading. Perhaps if you started reading the Bible in January, you've read some of Genesis. You've maybe reached Exodus by now. And if you haven't yet reached Exodus, you will. And maybe you've reached Leviticus. If you haven't, you will. And when you're reading through these books, you're going to find some difficult issues. And I have four simple notes I want to remind us as we consider what is before us. The first is that biblical doctrine does not help us solve riddles. It helps us live rightly. Biblical doctrine does not help us solve riddles. It helps us live rightly. I can't stress that enough. I don't care if you can win whatever the Bible game show that Jeff Foxworthy hosts is. I hope you have biblical knowledge. Does he still host that show? Is that still a thing? It'll be on Netflix sooner or later. I'll find out, I guess. But. I'm not interested in just knowing facts about the Bible, I'm not interested in what's your position on this, what's your position on that, what's your position on this. I think we should have well thought out positions about difficult biblical issues, but we're reminded that biblical doctrine isn't meant to just help us solve riddles, it's meant to help us live God's way. Second thing I would ask, when considering difficult doctrines, we must not call an eternal God into our earthly courts. His ways, church, are simply not our ways, and that's not a theological sort of obfuscation, but that's just true, that God is so much greater and so much bigger. Us trying to fully comprehend His ways would be like me giving you a cup and saying, go put the Atlantic Ocean in this. It's just not possible. But at the same time, the third point is God can handle your questions. God can handle your questions. He doesn't stand aloof, or stand back from afar and say, figure everything out, figure out every complex theological issue in the Bible. And then when you've got to figure it out, come talk to me. God knows your frailty. He knows your weakness. He knows your humanity. He knows you're bent towards skepticism. He knows the things that culture has instilled in you, the things that sin has instilled in you. He understands, and he can handle your questions. Finally, a fourth point when during biblical difficulties. Let the Bible speak. You don't need to apologize for the meaning of the text. You don't need to assume that there's some deeper knowledge out there that they give you in seminary, and that when you've got that deeper knowledge in seminary, then you can come to a difficult text and read it. You need to understand that you can read your Bible, and you can learn. You can read your Bible, and you can grow. You can read your Bible, and that can lead you to worship the triune God of the Bible. We have commentaries. We have tools to help us read well. That's something we value deeply here at Rez is accurate biblical preaching. But when I preach, when I'm explaining the text, I'm not explaining away the text. I don't have access to a dark knowledge that you don't have. When we encounter difficult situations, let the text speak. It means what it says. So, how do we learn what it says? What do we make of this idea that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Three things I would say if you're taking notes. The first thing I would say is that Pharaoh would get what he wanted. Pharaoh would get what he wanted. The picture that's been painted of Pharaoh to this point is not of a ruler who would say, you know what I really want out of this life? I really want to let the Hebrews go, I really want to obey the God of Israel. I really want to listen to Moses and I really want to do whatever Moses says. We don't see in Pharaoh a willingness or a soft-heartedness or an openness to do the things that God is asking him to do. We see from Pharaoh obstinance, right? Pharaoh wants power and ultimately God is going to give him power. Pharaoh wants this opportunity to have a dance with the God of the Israelites and ultimately God will give Pharaoh the opportunity to have this dance with himself. Tim Keller often argues that the judgment of God is God giving us that which we want most, that God brings his judgment upon us by giving us that which we want. And ultimately, Pharaoh is receiving what he wants. He wants his power to be on display, so the God of the universe is going to put his power on display. Pharaoh's love of his perceived power would be the very thing that leads him to ruin. God does not take an innocent man and make him do evil things. God does not take an innocent man and make him do evil things. Pharaoh is not a morally neutral vessel which the Almighty has abducted and will do these things through him so that he doesn't have to take the blame or the fall. Leads me to a question. If biblical doctrine is to be understood with our minds and obeyed with our hearts, how can we obey a text like this with our heart? I would ask you this. What is it that you want, right? Pharaoh wanted this power to be made known. What if God gave you the very things that you want most? What if God gave you the very things that you want most? I've not lived a super long life. I concede that my experiences is vastly limited. Many of you have more experience in life than me, and I look to glean wisdom from you, but I can even look back over my short life and think about all the things I wanted from God, all the things I wanted out of life, all the things I wanted to happen, whether relationally or professionally or vocationally or educationally, and I think about all the things I wanted. What if God had given me all of those? And from where I'm sitting today, not necessarily from a place of great success or great popularity or great fame, but just the situation I find myself in, I look back and I say, man, I'm glad God didn't give me all that stuff. (laughs) I'm glad this relationship didn't happen. I'm glad I didn't go to this school. I'm glad I didn't take this job. I'm glad I didn't explore this passion. I'm glad I didn't waste time here. And at the same token, I can see things that I wanted that I did that didn't lead to what I thought they would lead to. I see decisions I made in my life because I thought they were what God wanted, but really they were what I wanted, and the heart justifies what the mind justifies what the heart wants. (laughs) And I see the brokenness and pain that resulted from those decisions. So, for a moment together, what if we just thanked God for not giving us everything we want? What if we thanked God for not allowing our hearts to be the tyrannical leader and tyrannical oppressor of our lives? Church, I talked about this in our Sunday school, our Bible study, our, our health class, whatever we wanna call it, Fully His, that we have at 9.30 that you can come to every week. That's a free plug. I talked about that this morning. I, I said the Christian life is a really a reorienting of the things we want, not just a reordering of the things we believe. The Christian life is a reorienting of the things we want, not just a reordering of the things we believe. The world has sold us all a picture of the good life. What does that picture of the good life look like? It looks like money. It looks like comfort. It looks like status. It looks like success. It looks like other people liking you. It looks like weighing right where you're supposed to weigh, not more, not less, It looks like having the perfectly edited online presence. It looks like being able to retire whenever you want to retire. It looks like living in a house that other people see and want. It's about having things that make other people jealous. This is the vision of the good life that the world is selling us. But Jesus points us to a better life. Jesus points us to his kingdom. And the Christian life is a habitual turning from the end goal of the good life as defined by the world to the end goal of the good life as defined by God in his kingdom. It's a turning from pride to humility. It's a turning from bravado to meekness. It's a turning from polarity to peacemaking. It's a turning from being served to being a servant. It's turning from life as we live it into God's life. We call this repentance changing our mind about the way we live. I don't wanna be captive to my power cravings. I don't wanna be captive to my lust. I don't wanna be captive to my insecurities, my depression or my bitterness. I wanna be captive to King Jesus, trusting that he will lead me in a still more excellent way. The overwhelming testimony of scripture is that if you want God, you get God. And if you want God, it's because God has pursued you. Pharaoh's heart is hardened because Pharaoh's heart is receiving exactly what Pharaoh's heart wants. Let's look in our second point. Pharaoh's heart is hardened and hardening. Pharaoh's heart is hardened and hardening. What do I mean when I say heart? I think I mean the heart is the center of personality. Right? The heart is the source of moral life. It's the seat of the will, the conscience, and the affections. This is sort of our emotional center, the seat of the self in the Bible. What's it mean that it's been hardened? Some commentators note that this hardened can also be translated as made heavy. That Pharaoh's heart is being made heavy by his sin. In Egyptian mythology, and Egyptian theology, at the end of your life, your heart would be measured against a feather. And if your heart sunk below the feather, the uh, angel of death would come and sink you, right? He would come and devour you because that heaviness is a sign of unrighteousness. God has revealed Pharaoh's heart and God has revealed Pharaoh's sin, rather, and shown his heart to be Heavy Church, we have to remember that Pharaoh has received an earnest, authentic, and sincere invitation to do the right thing, and he declined it. How did he get there? We understand through the lens of the cross and the gift of New Testament theology that Pharaoh's heart is sinful from the get-go. But we also know he's in many respects, just like me and you, he's a product of his environment. There is a process by which his heart was hardened. And I think there is a a pattern for us. There is a process by which our heart hardens as well. And one commentator talks about it like this. And if you're taking notes, I would definitely write this down. In every process of hardening, there is something which the heart parts with. There is something which the heart parts with. There's something the heart resists. And there's something the heart becomes. There's something the heart becomes. There's something the heart resists. And there's something the heart parts with. Let's think about that for a moment. The heart hardens itself in some evil thing, right? Lust, bitterness, anger, whatever that might be. By habitually engaging in whatever thing that. Is that quality gradually becomes a, a fixed presence in the heart? These evil things become constitutive, right? They become part of what that heart is. The heart hardens itself in anger, the heart hardens itself in bitterness, the heart hardens itself in lust, and the heart hardens itself against. It's no longer open to good influences. The heart is hardened against truth. The heart is hardened against love. The heart is hardened against righteousness and however we experience those things. If you hear truth from people in your life, when you don't like the truth you're hearing, you harden your heart to that person and you push that person away. You harden yourself to your conscience. The first time you downed that bottle, you heard that conscience, and now you can't hear it anymore. We quit coming to church. We quit reading our Bibles. We quit gathering in smaller groups. We quit sensing our conscience. We start lashing out against those things, and we start making excuses for our experience and perhaps most tragically of all the heart parts with something the heart parts with its sensitivity to conscience the heart parts with its understanding of truth leaving us blind calloused and broken Pharaoh's situation is that of an enemy but Pharaoh's situation is deeply sad hard-heartedness leads to brokenness and despair hard-heartedness leads a mere mortal to think he can clash with god church i'm less interested in you articulating the perfect theology for hard-heartedness and i'm more exper- interested in you not experiencing hard-heartedness <laughs> I'm less interested in your 10-page defense of Pharaoh's hard heart, and I'm more interested in you asking a question this morning. Is my heart getting hardened? This is by no means a binary. I think we should do theological work. I think we should think about how these things are happening like we're doing this morning. But I want to remind you that God's word is meant to be loved and obeyed. Is your heart this morning in the process of hardening? Have you given in so often to lust, anger, bitterness, rage, deceit, you name it, I don't have to name it, there's something that you know in your mind, that you're turning from good influences and you're losing your sensitivity to your conscience, you're losing your sensitivity to the Spirit of God if you're a Christian. You're losing your desire to hear God's word, church, praise God that we're here this morning. Praise God that His Spirit is alive in us. Praise God for the opportunity of a second chance. We together plead for grace to overcome besetting sin. If your heart's in the process of hardening, I have good news for you. Jesus says, come. Come all you who labor. Come all you whose hearts are hardened. Come all you who've forgotten how to feel. And I will teach you what it means to be human again. A third thing I would remind us when we think about Pharaoh's heart being hardened We've seen what? We've seen that Pharaoh would get what he wanted. We've seen that hard hardness leads to brokenness and despair. Now we see that redemption, judgment, and glory are interrelated themes. Redemption, judgment, and glory are interrelated. Let's zoom out for a moment. God has elected to himself a particular man. Abraham, from that man would come a particular nation, Israel, and from that particular nation would become particular, would come a particular man, Jesus, who would be a savior for the whole wide world. God is delivering his people in Exodus that he may bless them, and that they may be a blessing to the nations, that all the nations around Israel might see that in a world with so many little g-gods, there is but one true God. There is but one living God. And God's deliverance of his people and his blessing of his people in their land is meant to be a gospel proclamation. It's meant to be a billboard for antiquity to say, God is is good God is powerful and God is worth your worship so that the coastlands and nations afar would come and worship at Mount Zion God is delivering his people in this way but a pagan king stands in his way One commentator says Pharaoh's obstinacy was foreseen and foreknown. He was allowed to set his will against God in order that there might be a great display of the almighty power such as would attract the attention of both the Egyptians and all the surrounding nations. God's glory would be thereby promoted and there would be a general dread of interfering with God's people. (laughs) There would be a general dread of interfering with God's people in Exodus God will judge the oppressor God will redeem the oppressed and he will receive glory as the one who's done it all judgment brings about redemption and redemption demonstrates the glory of God. Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and God is going to harden his heart further and remind the world who he is. Rather, teach the world who he is. He will tell a story of his glory, and even the obstinacy of Pharaoh, even the refusal of Pharaoh to play a role will be used as a role in a story about the greatness of our God. This is the story of Exodus, and it's the story of all creation. God will judge all evil, either at the cross or in hell. God will redeem the world and a remnant from humanity. That remnant from humanity is all who trust in the Son, all who trust in Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, fully God and fully man, who came and lived and died in our place. He extends his righteousness to all the nations sincerely. God will judge all evil. God will redeem the world, and he will redeem to himself a people all those who call on the name of Jesus, and God will be glorified. He will be seen for who he truly is. Every false god will die. It will break. It will fall apart, but our God will stand forever. Habakkuk 2.14 says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Exodus and the whole story of the Bible is taking place in the context of a battle, not just a battle uh, against Pharaoh and Moses, but against God and Satan, right? A cosmic struggle between good and evil, and King Jesus wins. The text shows us a man who is clinging to his powers, trying to build his own kingdom. And ultimately, Lord, you superimposed your stuff, Lord. You acted and gave him what he wanted. Father Father help us be not like pharaoh but help us hear the offer of deliverance that you extend and help us believe help us obey and help us live in active response to the one who is victorious Help us live in active response to the one to whom Aaron's rod points, to the Jesus who lived, to the Jesus who died, and the Jesus who rose. In Christ's name we pray.